wasn't uh, even prepared. I didn't need all I, whatever. No, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> um, I overstand that shit. <laughs> overstand is a good word. To, I've it's a good word to apply. Yeah, <laughs> I don't just understand. I was just it. allowing you to be yourself, just freely speak and. And when you ask me a question, I'll tell you, I overly stand that shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And that's... Uh, and we go from there. <laughs> and uh, where we're going to is episode number 12 of the WTF Carbondale podcast. With me for this show is Lee Hughes. Among many things that he is, lyrical nomad, barber... T. Murph's old buddy. We'll get to that. <laughs> he is also Lee Hughes, MSW. Just another one of the interesting people living interesting lives here in this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. Lee Hughes, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, what's up? Blessings, man. <laughs> so how did you get to Carbondale of all places? Well, I don't want to give the long story because it could be like, I get I get to go in and Hey man, it's yeah, the internet. We I got just, time. I'm living in it, right? <laughs> so music, you know, and that was like always my main thing. Um wanted to, you know, be this hip hop, you know, for for president, for my job. Like that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And um you know, I had a kid. And life became realer than it's ever been for me, period, because I felt like I didn't really have a dad. Mm-hmm. I had figures and individuals that became like my dad, but I didn't have that, you know. So I'm like, man, everything got to stop. I was talking to my wife at the time, and she was like, um, you know, I went to Carb- Carbondale, SIU. Uh, it's about 300 miles away. You know you can use your military benefits and go to school. At at the time, I'm like, I'm thinking like a hustler. Mm-hmm. You know, like, man, I got to make some money. I'm going to do this and do that. I actually think I had braids in my head at the time. <laughs> like I had <laughs> <laughs> also, and, uh And, like, that shit became real to me. I'm like, wow, we can do that. We can go to Carbondale. I know somebody there. Mm-hmm. He was one of my... Uh, like one of my best friends and mentors, Amiel Jackson. And um, we were in the military together. And he mentioned Carbondale to me in 97. Mm-hmm. But I was so like, anybody that know me know, like Lee got a hard ass head. <laughs> and I admit it, I just think a lot. And I have a response waiting. And I try not to wait too long. Mm-hmm. So forgive me for that, y'all. You know, <laughs> but he was like, man, I'm going to college. You know, this dude was like airborne, air assault, like everything. Be all you could be in the mm-hmm. Army. Amiel Jackson, I'm going to say it live. What the F, Carbondale? That dude is a rock star to me mm-hmm. because he was the superstar in my life because of the aspirations that I had set for myself. Mm-hmm. So I see this dude. He's really cool. He was in the hip hop. Um charismatic, very intelligent, you know, and loved hip-hop and knew some of the same people I knew. And he was, like, grooming me and teaching me how to, like, live life. The big brother I was, like, praying for. 
And in 97, he was like, yo, come to Carbondale with me, and we're going to go to college. We're going to do this and that, and we're going to get our education. We're going to come back here, and blah, 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 blah. And um, I, went and told, I went and told my mom, and uh, my mom, she might not remember this, but I was like, man, I'm yeah, want me to go to school. I'm working at the Plaza in Chicago. Like, I got this job. I got my had this job at AT&T. Like, I was making moves in the city. So, like, school mm-hmm. wasn't – I was like, I can do school. I love school. So, that's not, like, something, like, I'm going to do every – I'm going to do this. And then school is always going to be, like, right here. Because mm-hmm. either I'm going to be physically in the classroom and be trying to learn something on my own. And uh, I told him, yeah, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to work, and, man, so keep in touch. And we kept in touch. And he, he told me about every waking moment <laughs> of his experiences in Carbondale. For those of y'all that know Carbondale, like, back in the 90s, oh, man, you're talking about <laughs> cultural competence at its finest, man. It was love. It was good times. Every, I'm going to talk like Amiel for a second, because I do sometimes. <laughs> it was good times. We had wonderful things happen. Look, man, it was amazing, Lee. It was amazing. And he was telling me about this shit, and I was just like, man, <laughs> I ain't going to school. Then one time, he came home, or we talked or something on the phone, and he was like, I met these guys. <laughs> this is, I'm telling you, this is how the conversation went. If he see this shit, he gonna know for sure this is real conversation. <laughs> he was like, I met these guys. <laughs> these motherfuckers are just like you. You need to get down here, and you need to be a part of these dudes, man. Really. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, man, I gotta come down and see what you're talking about. And... Uh, <laughs> That became my focus. <laughs> like, I came down here to visit. I met these guys, and I was like, I'm in fucking heaven. It's a bunch of wild dudes. These dudes are scholars. These dudes are like public figures. They are metaphysical. These dudes play chess, and they wild and fucking crazy like <laughs> me. So... Yes, that's that's what really made the last decision for me to bring my family, <laughs> pack my whole family up, like like going on a mission. You know, my ex had the statement, I go to Carbondale. Then this moment happened, and I came down here because I wanted to be a part of those guys. I wanted to have, like this is Amiel talking again, I wanted to be a part of that, and I wanted to enjoy that part of college. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a Q, you know, <laughs> but the Qs brought me here, and I came on, like, one of the last Halloween celebrations in Carbondale. <laughs> it was 99 or 2000, and my boy, Amiel Jackson, called me down here to be a part of this shit. He had a whole night planned out for me. And I'm like, this can't be fucking real. This is the most amazing shit ever did in my life. Like, why do these, it's like magical. Like, as I've closed my eyes and think, 
this Carbondale became like this magical, like Disney place. Like <laughs> when you was kids, like it was two sprinkles and shit. <laughs> I'm serious, man. That's it, this man. Shit, no, it's it was it. like it was sprinkles happening over Carbondale during that time for me because I was wilding. I had kids on the way. Like it was too much going on. I need to slow down. And Carbondale kind of like brought me back into reality, but still. Gave me like this magical life experience while I was here, but also taught me some real valuable lessons and real like things in life that you need to understand. But do understand that this place is not like the whole life of yours. And that's what happens. <laughs> People come to Carbondale and they want to keep living <laughs> these moments over and over again. They never leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, the dreams, like the Disney dreams, just start happening. You can be whatever you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you switch your major a thousand times. And that's how I became in the master's degree that I was in, <laughs> you know, as a, as a social worker. Because I switched my major, like, one, two, maybe like four times. <laughs> <laughs> but the master's degree to me, because I was a He-Man fan, and those, my mama know I was a He-Man lover. I love fucking He-Man. <laughs> From the powers of Grayskull. Like, he pulled that <laughs> shit in. He was like, I have the powers. And he was like this regular dude, Adam. And, like, Adam is a really <laughs> soft, like, cool guy's name. Like, uh -huh. Adam is your friend. You know, Adam can sleep over. He got good parents. He's good. Adam's is, you know, he's doing a wonderful job. He's learning. And Adam was this guy, and then all of a sudden, to save the universe, not just like Illinois, Chicago, Carbondale, this motherfucker saved the universe. He was the master <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> and the powers of Grayskull are the <laughs> Like he pulled all that shit in from the universe and became the master of that shit. That was my hero, man. <laughs> 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 Fucking he, man. And I felt like that coming to fucking Carbondale, I felt like I could do anything. I felt like I could do anything, and I still do. Obviously. <laughs> it, it's a weird, you're right, there, there is. There I don't is, even fucking know where I went with this no, shit. No, but, but that's, but I mean, that's where this podcast goes. Yeah. Right? That, there, is, there is some like magical little thing about this place that makes so many people feel like that. I remember. Can I go back? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fuck yeah. All right. So, Ariel calls me down for this Halloween shit before they shut it down. Uh-huh. On the strip. He had a whole fucking night weekend plan for me. And I didn't know this was like his plan, but it orchestrated out to the most amazing memories and shits I had in my life. That's why uh -huh. the twinkles came in, because I started going back to that moment when I felt that shit. <laughs> I arrived. He stayed in Colonial... East or yeah. some shit. Yeah, yep. Over yep. there by the Carbondale, the new Carbondale High School. I don't even think that shit was there when I came that year. 1433 East Walnut Street. I don't even know if that new high school was there, but I remember how to get to Colonial East. Yep. And uh, we just hung out. You know, we chopped it up. You know, me and Um did what we did on the smoke. And then he, like, introduced me, like, people like J. Crew and you know, smoke and like all these guys, man, I was meeting when I was coming down here, man, these dudes was like, they were just like me. Like, they liked the same shit I like. We was like intelligent. We had articulate conversations and so forth. And I was around some amazing people. 
Then he bust out some 40 ounces of <laughs> old English. And he said, we're going to drink these old eggs. <laughs> then we're going to go out on the strip. I got this pizza place. Like, everybody that's from original, like that era, mm-hmm. Sticks had a pizza place. Like, when you walk through the door of Sticks, it was like a pizza place on the left-hand side. Uh-huh. I don't know if it was like Pags or somebody. Laromas. It kind of tastes like Pags. Like, their pizza tastes like Pags. Because I can remember the taste of that fucking pizza, man. <laughs> and he, like, we got slices there and shit in the daytime. And then we was riding, and he had, like, this Riviera back then. It was, shit was burgundy. It was like Saluki burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think I remember color code, that shit? Color code to match <laughs> the straight brown of it. Hey! You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think I remember that shit? He had, like, this, and that shit had leather seats, so this motherfucker was a pimp to me. He was intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> he was a fucking airborne ranger. Like, this dude could have went to ranger school. <laughs> he from the Wild Hunnets of Chicago, man. Wow, hundreds, they call it. People stay right by the train tracks. Like this dude from the wild, wild. And this dude was about to be an airborne ranger. So, like, that was like my fucking heat man. And he was from Liberia, so he was African. So, like, he had no body fat. So, he, when he took his shirt off, it was like, like, he man style. Like, yo, son. He was. <laughs> Oh, Rock, that's what they call him. That's my boy, man. Then he brought me here. He gave me that pizza. We was riding over the train tracks going back to Colonial East, and he was playing Dead Prayers album and this song, Happiness. And and if you ever heard that fucking song, Dead Prayers album, you need to listen to it again. <laughs> that album was amazing. Dead Prayers, you know. Hey, we riding over the train tracks. He's playing this song, Happiness, and the beat was like, mm, mm, mm. So we ride. <laughs> he got the windows down. He's like, let the seat back. We ride going back to Colonial. He's eating these fabulous tasting ass pizza slices. And I was like, man, I got to come back to Carbondale, man. Like that moment wanted me to come back. But wait, there's more. <laughs> we, get, <laughs> we get back, finish the pieces, drink some more beer. Then we go to Sticks. Like, he was like, man, you can get pictures here. You can play pool. And he knew I like to do all that shit. Yeah. You know, pictures and pool, I think it's a good night. Add some cigars in that shit and some whiskey. Fabulous night. And he knew I like to do that shit. So now we in the place. They got the fabulous pizza slices. And they got pool tables. And they got pictures of beer. And it's like people in here just have an amazing time. We go in there on Halloween 99 or 2000, and we play some pool, we drink some beers. By this time, like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm in the stars, bro. Like, I wasn't even there. I was there, but I wasn't there. And I remember the moment when he said, hey, put the beer down. We're going outside. <laughs> so it was like, some, the way he said it was like, I didn't even, like, what the fuck? Why are we going outside? I'm thinking in my brain, like, why is we going outside? But I didn't even see this shit coming, Nate. I like <laughs> I was oblivious to what was getting ready to happen because I was so thoroughly immersed in that the moments that we were having, Arm mm-hmm. and I. We walk out the door of Sticks, and y'all gotta quote me on this whenever you see this video. Was it ninety nine or two thousand? I don't remember. But after that year, like they cut off the Halloween everything mm-hmm. SIU mm-hmm. celebration. We outside. And there's a sea 
of people. They wasn't even out there when we went to Sticks earlier. <laughs> These people came from nowhere. It was hundreds upon hundreds of people on the strip. So if you know Carbondale now, stand in front of Sticks, look to your left, maybe all the way down by Insomnia Cookies, mm -hmm. and then go to your right all the way down past Dairy Queen. Because right there where Dairy Queen was SIU police, the Illinois State Police, and they should have had a mounted police because, <laughs> like, they had all the police there on that end. That's you what know? we need. We need... We need horse cops. We get we they got horses here. Yeah, Dan the man. We got on, we got a, we got all the we got all this room. Yeah, out Jennifer behind the police station. We just people. need a stable. These people are horse people in Carbondale. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, <laughs> so if you know Carbondale, just just be with me right now. I'm coming out of Sticks, 99, 2000, and I see, man, I'm like, what the fuck? What is all these people doing here? What the hell's going on? So I'm riding with on because we move and shake. Like he always told me, crowd over here, you need to be over here. Because then you can see what the crowd is doing. You know, you can't do nothing in the foxhole. Mm -hmm. You got to be outside the foxhole to see what was going in the fox. You know, it's like all these analogies and shit he was giving mm -hmm. me. But it, it <laughs> helped me through my life. And I'm following him. So we go on the other side, I think on the side of Old Town Liquors, like right at that parking lot where First Southern Bank or uh -huh, whatever that uh -huh. So we standing right there. And we had like a front row view of all the debauchery and pillaging and shit that was going on at the moment. And we just really literally sat there and watched everything. And he was pointing out shit. And he was like, damn, did you see that lady on the sign right there? I said, <laughs> no. I look over there. Man, it's a person on the sign. It used to be like burritos big as your head or uh -huh. something like that. La Bombas. Changos. Yeah. Now, it was a like, sign out there. There's a person on the sign, like, swinging. <laughs> that shit was high as hell. It had to be, like, 30 feet in the air. Then the sign breaks, like, this person falls down. The sign hits people. Like, this shit was crazy. Then it was people walking down the strip. Girls had their shirts off. Like, it was Mardi Gras. And they guys, you know, the guys, the surfers and volleyball guys, these guys had chicks on their shoulders, and they're walking like, hey, they, the girls like, yeah, like this shit was crazy. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? But I was like, I gotta go back to Carpenter. I never seen no shit like that. Then a buddy of mine, Omar Dominique, which is now Dr. MD or DO, I'm not sure which one, <laughs> but Dr. Dominique, he was like, man, that's the number one party school. We was at the stands at De La Salle. He was like, that's the number one party school in Illinois. So he telling me, because he know like, that shit was going to hype me up. <laughs> so I got this in the back of my mind, too. And I'm like, that's why all this shit is happening. This is real. So when I had the word, we moved down here because like I premeditated hanging out with this guy. <laughs> and, dude, I admit it. <laughs> I moved my whole family down here <laughs> to hang out with Amiel Jackson. <laughs> but look at us now. <laughs> That is going to be... We made it. <laughs> at episode, like, 100, I'm going to have to do, like, a top five reasons people move to Carbondale. RBL you got to be... That's, that's got to land top five. And I love you. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't just come down. You weren't just like, I'm following a party. No. You were like, I'm following this party. Yes, he was he man to me. <laughs> he was a master of the universe. Like, He-Man, all you He-Man fans out there know, He-Man had, like, a castle. 
it wasn't like an apartment or a three bedroom. Like he had this castle, you know, and he lived here. And then you had Skeletor, and Skeletor wasn't no punk. Skeletor was a dead face person. Like he had a <laughs> skull on his face, but he was like built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like he was a man. Like he was cut up just like he man, but he was purple, and he had like purple shit on. This dude was big as <laughs> hell. Like, <laughs> like this whole shit was my life, man. And the trap door and all that shit in Castle Grayskull, man, I love that fucking shit. And that's, that was my life. And RBL, fucking Airboy Ranger, he's a black guy, like from Liberia. Like, this dude is black. Like, <laughs> he ain't brown. Like, I'm sending him. This brother is, he's got some melanin. <laughs> so he was official. And he was sexy too. Dude was like sexy and shit. Like, he knew how to talk to women. He always was like real smooth with the ladies and shit. You know, so I was like, and then he would pull out that sword, yell, yeah, "I have the power!" I have the power. <laughs> and he was real cool. Like I would see this is my like my best friend, my mentor, like my brother. He in the army with me, like all types of shit. I would see him out in Chicago. I remember one time, I think I was on the lakefront or something, and I just run into him, and he had like this collar shirt on. He, hey, um, if you ever watched this shit, you remember this moment. <laughs> and he's sitting out there with his lady at the time. He was like, man, what's up? He was real cool. And I don't know what I was doing. I was hanging out with some people. But when I saw him, like, I just wanted to hang with him and shit. But he was like, he told me real quick, there's a pool hall. <laughs> remember the pool shit? <laughs> and sticks? <laughs> this was in Chicago. He was like, it's a pool hall around the corner and a bar. We'll come back through here another day. And I kept on walking. And they still know I was hanging out over that area and shit because of him. And that was a, like an exclusive, <clears throat> it jogs my memory, but it's like Congress or something, like over there by the bridge, mm-hmm. it's a lower place down there. And like Lower Wacker Drive, I don't know where it's at, but it, it had some bars and it was like right by the water. And it was like, I ain't never been over here. I'm like, this is some exclusive <laughs> shit. This dude is just amazing. So it brought me back over there to that area because of him. How'd you get into being a barber? I've been cutting hair since I was uh, 15. And the reason why I started cutting hair is because, one, I didn't have enough money every weekend to get my hair cut. Because I wanted my hair cut every weekend. (laughs) Because I wanted to be fresh. Like, really, the same haircut I got now. Mm-hmm. Probably what I had in back in the day. I wanted to get a haircut every weekend. It was like $11. Uh, Alfon, uh, Alonzo's. So, you know, it's real, babe. I'm from the low end, 35th Street. <laughs> <laughs> if you from 35th back in the day, you know, Alco's, Alonzo's, I was there. And Alonzo's was the first barbershop, like, I was getting my haircut in Chicago. And... Now, I just wanted to cut my own hair because I couldn't afford it no more. Then I started meeting people. Like, I met Theodore Bullock. You know, he's one of my brothers and mentors from the low end. He stayed in Adderby Wells. This dude was, like, the low-end barber. He was, like, the, the guy. And if you think about, like, the Gap, 35th Street, <clears throat> in Chicago back in those days, it's people everywhere. And he was in the Adderby's, which was over by Martin Luther King Drive. So he stayed in one of the original buildings. And this dude was like the most amazing barber in the area. I mean, people would come to him, and those who know they cut, got their hair cut by Teddy, he was like Murph. Like, if anybody used to get their hair cut by Murph, 
No, you getting a whole like comedy show. <laughs> you gonna get like he, he didn't give a fuck. Give, I was like, bro, man, you got people. He's like, man, fuck that shit. Man, Joe, you know, like, you know, like man, Joe, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, Bert, man, you got to cut. Man, they lined up, bro, sitting in here just to hear this guy do some. And, and some of his most famous comedy skits, he knows this. He practiced that shit right there in the barbershop. Fuck yeah, he did. Like, and I heard the shit like, oh, man, I heard that joke before. But then, like, I understood, like, man, the world ain't heard this shit. He took them fucking jokes <clears throat> and took that shit to the world. And that shit, like, that shit overnight. One thing about Murph, and he. That overnight, over, overnight success with 10 plus years into hey, it. Hey, bro, don't get, don't get it twisted. The dude works fucking hard. Every day. I know for a fact. He's not just an intelligent person, a knowledgeable person. Uh, he's very observant of environments and shit like that. The dude is in, the dude is amazing. He is amazing. He, he works fucking hard for everything he has. I seen that shit. So I'm be one to tell you, and Murph is probably sitting there laughing his ass off looking at me. Because <laughs> he know, he know he can he can mimic me to death because he knows I am so fucking this dude is amazing. And I why I would ask him because he would he be knowing shit that I didn't know like stock market shit and your credit like Murph everybody anybody that know Murph Murph was hard <laughs> on that credit for a minute like <laughs> he was like learning that shit he was like like Tuki and them shit from Los Angeles motherfucker like yo you know what I'm saying like <laughs> we on this credit shit right here you got to get the FICO you got to get this like, yeah. <laughs> this little motherfucker I'm like we were sitting in the shop he was telling me this shit and I'm like man but the way he framed it. Made me want to intrigue me to go like learn about some credit shit. Like I had an idea, but I didn't learn as much as I learned about credit until me and Murph had that conversation. Real talk. That's the type of dude he was. Then he pulled up with a beamer at the barbershop. Uh, six thirty-five. <laughs> six thirty-five. He was like, "Yo, Lee, I'm about to get this beamer." I'm like, "How the fuck you gonna afford this beamer? We in a barbershop, man." <laughs> He you said know credit. He, he said credit. Man, bro, <laughs> then he introduced me to somebody at SIU Credit Union. <laughs> that if you had a 600, <laughs> you was in the game. You getting all types of. <laughs> Let me tell you what 3.5% looks bro, like. <laughs> Murph was on some shit, bro. This dude is an innovator. He pulls up with the Beamer, bro. We at the barbershop. He got a Beamer outside. <laughs> then people coming in, like, this dude will take an hour and 30 minutes. A more on the fucking head, like, like Murph, calm your ass down. He had that swerp, that swope, like he did the swope line. It irritates the shit out of me, Murph. I'm like, go in some more, curb that shit more. Murph had the signature shit he used to do, and those that know used to get the haircut by him. That shit was his signature, and that motherfuckers loved that shit. <laughs> they loved. They would get in my chair and they'd be like, give me the Murph, uh, give me the Murph. I'm like, what the fuck? Where's the Murph, man? <laughs> Give me curve this shit. <laughs> Murph created his own line and everything. That motherfucker, man. <laughs> Gratarius Jackson. <laughs> this motherfucker's amazing, man. That's my bro. <laughs> and he know I beat him up. I shoot him, motherfucker, for him. <laughs> he know that. He know me like this nigga Lee is crazy for real. Like he's a cool guy. He laugh, but this motherfucker snap any moment. Like you know what I'm saying? Mission Impossible. It's like. <laughs> 
the pandemic in my brain, like I just uh, maturian candidate, I'm just starting changing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you got all these pop culture references, yeah. Lee. Goddamn. Hey, that was a good time in my life, man. <laughs> Hey, 80s music, like, that was my shit. That's why your, kid, that's why your kids are all into this shit, man. It's Bro, because you grew them up in media and you were like, yes. I love this shit. You have to love this shit. Fucking 80s was therapeutic for me, man. <laughs> because I remember a time on the radio station, my uncle, he's like a big fucking radio guy uh-huh. in Arkansas, uh, Mark Dillon. You know what I'm saying? He's fucking big time radio guy, 30 some odd years. This motherfucker used to have play everything. And I remember a time when it wasn't like a hip-hop station, a R&B station, or a rock station. It was like the station. And uh-huh. they played everything. You would hear a Whitney Houston song, then you would hear Run DMC or something. Like, it was crazy, but they played, and I used to go to sleep to that shit. I had a boom box, two speakers on the side, cassettes in the middle, and I would have it above my headboard and... Me and my little sister Shan, we would be, I put the music in, psh, we go to sleep. Listen to the radio, they play everything. Then things start to change and we had different genres of music, kind of like, that's when I understood different genres of music, be honest with you. When they like brought hip hop in and then you had R&B and then you had like this and that. But the 80s was just the 80s. The early 90s kind of, felt that way too when Nirvana came and dropped their fucking bomb on the world. Like, hip-hop guys was getting into hip-hop, but these fuckers, Nirvana, with Smell Like Teen Spirit, like, it took a culture and brought them all together. White, black, you name it. We If you listen to Nirvana, you was cool. Like, Man, you know that shit? Dude, you know, like, we got, yeah, we listen to this shit. We all know the words. And <laughs> you black guy, you a white guy, and we sing this shit in the locker room. Like, it brought us together, and then things started dividing again. But music was, like, always this fucking thing that brought people together. It brought me together in different forms of my life. Are we still talking about Barbara and the... Man, we're just... Right. This is the, this is the podcast. This is how this goes. This is perfect, man. This is the... I don't even fucking know. I, ideal podcast is I shut up and somebody else talks. And some of these podcasts, I've done too much talking in. Some of them, I've done just right. And this is great, man. All, all you've had to do is go. Like, like you, got the, you got the post-show fucking high, just like feeling the vibe. And like, you got a story to tell. And that's what we're here on. Yeah. I can't good. tell it all tonight, though. No, no, no. Yeah, because it's... No. Yeah, it, we're know. half an hour in. We got half an hour to go. We're not trying to get the whole story. All right. This is just an introduction. Yeah. This is just a, hi, how you doing? I'm a very cultural, like, cultural person. Like, I love different cultures. I love learning about other people. I was always the person that didn't know any strangers. Hence, yeah. I'm a social worker today. I mean, ex-cop. I don't mind talking to people. And any, anybody that knows me, I go anywhere in the world, and I have a conversation with a person, and it's like, they know some shit I know, we know some shit, and like we connect just like that. I've always naturally had like that ability. So that's one of the main things, you know, that kept me here in Carbondale, is being able to do that. It's, and it always goes back to that thing. In Carbondale, you don't have to go to the world, yeah. the world gets to come to you. Yeah. And it's different, like, you know, I, I've never been, I, you know, I'm, I'm from here, born and raised, stayed here. You know, I go to the city every now and then. Obviously, I was just in that 
fucking car accident and yeah, and I'm glad you're doing. Better. Yeah, no, it's it's good. But the um, but you know, it's it's like when you live in the city, even in the city, everything's split up. Yeah, and but like here, it's like everything is forced into one space, like just smushed all together. So, when did you when did you start at Arnett's? It was, uh, <clears throat> I think, two thousand seven. Were you working on your master's in social work then? Did you already have it completed, or were you yet to get into that part yet? I was. I was just knowing that that was going to be a goal of mine. Okay. At that point, and uh, I was just utilizing like my gifts and talents to try to bring some money into the house. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Uh, Got back into my cutting. I was doing on-the-move barbering. Like, that was my thing. I would go to the campus and cut heads on campus and then uh, hooked up with K-Styles. For those that, that, you know, original Carbondale, K-Styles had the first premier spot right there on the hill mm-hmm. where the Army and the Marine recruiters. Yep. He had one of the premier barbershops on the strip, uh, one of the first individuals to have a premier barbershop right there. On the strip before campus cuts and all that. Big up, much love. Cause I'm. That's what you know. what I'm saying that love uh, let me have an opportunity to cut hair when I was doing the on the move barbering and shit. It helped me really solidify. Like I I got to keep doing this shit. I yeah. love cutting hair. The barbershop vibe. I love this shit. And Kenny was you know he was a man of many. Like he can get some money, man. He know how to work. He know how he's a smart guy. He knows how to do this shit. So I admired his movement. I admired the person he was. And uh, from that barbershop, after that shit, I went back to the on the move shit because the barbershop shut down and I was just cutting it. So I had built up a clientele on campus. Mm -hmm. And um, that was like for some for sure money every week. You know, I'll Mm -hmm. make this amount. And I'm like, man, I got to figure out a way to keep doing it. So we do the on the move again. And um, I was cutting, I I ended up cutting in the garage of the house on Wall Street. And Mr. Kent had the barbershop Mm -hmm. around the corner because I used to go there to get my hair cut by Anthony or Shane or Moshe, uh, some of the legendary barbers that that are here in Carbondale. And... um, I was like, man, that's a that's a legendary shop, and and he didn't have anybody in there cutting at the time, you know, it was just him cutting. So I'm like, wow, this is my opportunity to get in a barbershop in a neighborhood, and I can just bring my customers here. So Mr. Kent, at the time, like he lived not too far from me, so he would pass through the neighborhood all the time, and I had a garage door open. And I'm cutting hair. And I'm like, my anybody know my personality? Hey, Kip, you know what I'm saying? You see me over here? Like, I get loud, and then I'll be right back here. You know what I'm saying? So I would do that to Kent. And Kent's so cool. Like, he ain't, look, if he raises his voice, you, something is wrong. <laughs> Kent will stop his car. I remember backing up a little bit. I'll go up and walk up. Hey, Mr. Kent, you know, I know you got the shop around the corner. You know, you see me cutting in the garage. You know, let me get an opportunity to come in there and cut with you. I think it was a year that he, like, watched me cut out the garage before he gave me my first opportunity in the barbershop. He cut in that barbershop for a little bit, like, a long time. When I say a little bit, it's really like a long, that street talk. It was like, 
Man, just a little bit joke, but it really being like a little bit, but it's a lot. <laughs> but Kit was in there cut by himself for a little bit, which is a long time. And I'm like, man, he finally gave me that first shot. And then that's when the May 8th storm hit. That's all I remember. Damn. Yep. The May 8th storm hit. I had been I had started building a the clientele there. And then like the roof had fell off the barbershop and it was crazy. It was on like the barbershop people see today, like it used to look different mm -hmm. when I first started working there. Like all the barbers after me, they saw the new barbershop. I was there before that the ceiling we have now was in there. Because mm -hmm. um, Mr. Daryl Tipton put that ceiling in. And I was there when the old ceiling was there. Like, that, you know, with Shane and them. <laughs> so I'm in that. I feel I feel blessed. I, was, I had a chance to touch that lane before, like, the new barbershop decade started. And Mr. Kent gave my opportunity. And uh, I can't even tell you why I'm still there. Like, bro, it was just, like, family. You know, that was, he was all about, like, family. He wasn't on nothing but let the people come in, get their hair cut. You know, we talked to the people. He taught me so much on how to cut kids' hair. Uh, I was real aggressive because I'm a real confident person. Mm -hmm. So, like, you couldn't tell me how to line your hair up. <laughs> As a barber, like, I've been doing this shit. You don't even know. I cut in the dorms. Like, you got to big it up in yourself and your brain. And he taught me how to listen to the customer. Mm-hmm and give the customer what they want and then just put your little spin on it to make it look better what they want, right? Like he was always on that shit, I was super aggressive. I remember one time, <laughs> and Murph know like this was a big statement, hey, let me do my job. I think I was drinking some Crown Royal or something. I was like, <laughs> cut I was cut hair and drinking Crown Royal at the same time. And this Hispanic guy was getting his hair cut and he was asking me to do some shit to his head and I already was going to do it anyway. <laughs> I think the crown, like, shut up and let me do this shit, Yeah, man. I think the crown roll like, <laughs> made me say that. I was like, hey, won't you let me do my damn job at birth? <laughs> it was crazy. But I got some stories, man. Yeah. And I was cutting in the Army, too. I, like, forgot to tell y'all that. All right. But that was, like, a long period of, like, my barbering shit from – you know, growing up cutting hair to, like, the military, mm -hmm. we were stationed in different places, and I was always, like, trying to cut hair. So I'm a, I'm a hustler. I like to make some money. Different avenues, whatever we can do, let's make some money at the end of the day. Yeah, take care of them kids. Yeah, you got to have your hands <laughs> in many pots. So that was always my mentality. So I am got hands here, hands there, and trying to do everything that I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and I forget what I'm no, man. About. So no, no. So here's here's a good segue right here, right? So we 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 want to talk about the MSW, right? And all and all Damn. This, uh, and all, and all where you're remember. at now with it. Oh, dude. No, this is what I do, man. I track the conversation the and I pull it back together. So now, Mr. Kennan stills this shit, and you like, you don't always know what's right. Listen to your customer. Yeah. And now you got this MSW, and who's your customer that you got to listen to? Somebody that needs your help. Everybody. But you can't just walk in and tell them, yeah. this is how I'm going to help you. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody needs some help, man. It's fucking, yeah, it's ludicrous. It's crazy. Yeah. 
<laughs> so how so how does that whole concept now apply to where you're at applying your MSW in the field doing work as a as a social worker? I mean, I just I I I want more for some of the people I work with than they want for themselves. That's I think that's the hardest thing because you see so much in them. And in your head, you like if I can do this, can do that, then they like this light bulb will come on and they'll like their whole lives will change. I'm beginning to realize that it's a process. Mm -hmm. That can happen. But how long are you willing to stick into the process? Mm -hmm. And then how long should you stay in the process before you allow them to do whatever they need to do? So it's a balance, you know, and, and you're still doing the same thing. And then it all boils down to self-care. Mm -hmm. The more you take care of yourself, the more you can take care of other people. I didn't get it. I'm trying to get it still. I don't get it because I'm a social worker. Why am I thinking about me? Well, me can't help them. Oh, and that's, I mean, that's something you learn in the military. Where's a police officer too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I was, everybody know, when I was in the Army, I was rowdy, man. I was, I'm one of them kids, man, ram your head into the concrete. Like, this dude is nuts. <laughs> I'm serious. All my colleagues, like I played sports with, they was like, "Man, this dude is mean." Like I used to be mean and challenge you and talk about you and like, "You can't do like a let's race right you now." Were, you were Skeletor. I, I don't know what I was, but I was like, I was challenge, always challenging people, and I was good at a lot of shit. You know, I was naturally talented at sports. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So it was, that was a gift of mine. Like I could play some fucking sports and feel like I can play them at high levels the more I train. And the guys I was playing with, I was A-type, you know, always fucking aggressive and shit. Now, bring me back to the MSW part. No, 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 no. This is where we go. <laughs> no, 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 no. this is my interview, Lee. <laughs> well, I'm no, but, 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 but no, I mean, this, this is it. This is all the MSW stuff, yeah. right? Where, where do you learn it? On the way through, and what I makes think I, you... I think I was saying, like, I think what happened, I segued into, like, the aggressive league. <laughs> you know, and now, which, and Lil' Fist know this, you know, my boy Amari Brooks. These are some of my best friends, like, 30 years. Lavelle Green, Amari Brooks, you know what I'm saying? Pierre Shuttlesworth. Uh, these individuals you know, are like my core group of people. Rashad Powell, you know what I'm saying? That's like my, that's my core group. And uh, I always would go back to them in a conversation to try to help figure out me. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a conversation when I was a police officer with Omari. You know, he was one of the main ones that didn't believe I had became a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> but he was like, Lee, you, because he the one who gave me the name Lee. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> yeah. So you oh, haven't Mari. always been Lee. At no. some point in time, you were Lenoris. Yes. All and right. sometimes that was my only name. I didn't have another name. It was Lenoris. Like, everybody called me Norris or Lenoris. Those that know me, still, that's what they call me. They can't call me Lee. They don't even know who Lee is. <laughs> but Omari, he used to call me Big Lee. 
my name is Lil Norris, not Lee Norris. But that was just him being him. Uh-huh. And he, he was like, your name is Big Lee. So he just kept calling me Big Lee. And Big Lee was like formed in 91. And this was my alter personality. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so you had the Lee guy. Then you had Lil Norris. And then you had Romeo G. We ain't going to talk about him. He was, <laughs> put, yeah. put him away. Put him away. Stash Rome, that. Romeo G had the... You know, he had some contacts in his eyes. He had a loop and like a hoop ring, like Michael Jordan. He used to smell good all the time. <laughs> he used to smell yeah. good. Yeah, this was <laughs> Romeo G. He listened to all the R&B songs. And he knew how to like do the ladies. You know, what I'm saying like he he loved the older ladies. You know, so he like. Yeah, she drinking booze for him, strawberry. I already got it. You know what I'm saying? Like I hooked up with my guys. Like that's what I was on. That was that's Romeo G. <laughs> like I could go there. Like that's in my brain. Like Romeo G. That's what he owned. I had like that was the most I ever cared about myself ever in life when I was Romeo G. Romeo G didn't give a fuck about nothing. Romeo G was Romeo G. He had, I had a, air, my sister Shannon tell you, I had an airbrush shirt with my face on it. <laughs> Damn, Romeo G on the bottom. And it had to, look, he asked me, Riot, Riot, one of the legendary graffiti artists in Chicago, man. Riot, big up, Riot. He had the, the airbrush shop right there on 35th next to Alco. And he asked me, he said, do you want me to make your eyes like your real color or these Romeo G eyes? I said, make them just like Romeo G. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to wear these contacts. Do you still have this shirt? I wish I fucking did. That's like another trauma thing I don't want to talk about. <laughs> I, <don't wanna> <laughs> I can't hold on to valuable shit in my life because I moved and went too many places in the world. Like, that's a trauma part. I had comic books. If I probably had the fucking Amazing Spider-Man first edition, bro, it's like four different covers. Like, I was into comic books and shit. Like, I lost all my Thor and all the shit. My sister, Shannon, no. Like, we moved so much. Like, in the middle of the night, it'd be like 2 o'clock in the morning. And my mom be like, get get the trash bags. We got to get out of here tonight. And I'd be like, I got to go to school in the morning. Shannon, she, Shannon was always mad. Shannon did not like that shit at all. Like, she was really waiting on me, like, turning to, hey, man, and, like, straighten this shit out. She, but she always stayed by my side, and she had the fucking trash bags, and we was loading all our shit up <laughs> Night after fucking night. So I, I lost a lot of shit along the way. That shit bothers me Man. because I had some of the finest. But you got so you got so much more than any material fine shit. You Absolutely. Can... But that was like my <laughs> I like to have my shit still. Yeah. You know, my <laughs> wife knows, like, I like the shit that I like, and I really don't want nobody touching it. <laughs> and for now, like, because I'm a father, grandfather, like, all this shit, like, I don't really care about my shit as much, but I am particular. Uh-huh. The little things. You know what I'm saying? That's Ooh. funny. Yeah. You want to you talk about mom's influence on social work or no? You can take well, a pass on that one and moms be cool. Gave, moms gave me the visual. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and she was only 16 when she had me. Mm-hmm. So when I did the math, she actually got pregnant at 15. Her birthday is in September. Mine's is in December. Mm-hmm. So she turned 16 on the 23rd while she was pregnant with me. Then had me in December. So she, to me, she was really still 15. Mm-hmm. 
right? So she was a little girl. I got a daughter that's 16. Mm-hmm. And I can't even I can't even put that shit in my brain mm-hmm. that she having a baby. I can't even put that shit. I'm bro. <laughs> Somebody's getting fucked up. <laughs> let, me t- let me just tell <laughs> Whatever the this violent side of Romeo G man, was. That's Romeo G could turn to a monster. So <sighs> first first hand experience helps the empathy, helps the interest, pushes it all kind of together yeah. from a young age. Yeah. When I was a police officer, I would go to people's houses and this whole scene would, would make me think about my own life. Yeah. But I also work with people that never saw this scene ever in their life. So the way they, they processed everything and the way I processed everything was different. Because of my, my life that I had experienced up until that point. Yeah. And I had seen so many different things that like I really felt like I knew what a real threat was. Like a real threat. This yeah. is not a threat at all. I had a judgment, like I had been able to make those type of judgment calls mm-hmm. because it was that type of environment, like a life and death. You either gonna get robbed, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a fight gonna break out, like that's the type of environment you had to make some decisions quick. So as a police officer, when I moved when I was working down here. I felt like I really overly understood, understood what a threat was. Uh-huh. Once you know, learning the process of the use of force policies and blah 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 and all the police mm-hmm. jargon. I got that, but I know what the fuck what a threat is. Well, and I'm and I'm sure it's the difference between somebody walking in and seeing yeah. a situation that is not ideal, but that does not but is not a threat, right? It's not a threat. And the ability to discern yeah. between what is Absolutely. an actual violent Absolutely. physical threat and what is simply an unkind scene in front of you. Yeah, and I, I felt like I really overly understood that type of shit. And then you put down with each of those, you have like a use of force that goes with that. Mm-hmm. So if they're at this level, you go here. If you're at this level, you go here, mm-hmm. and then like the last ultimate level is weapon, yeah. like gun, like your life is in danger. You must pull this, like you. This shit is like in your head, like Manchurian Candidate, like yeah, like my life is in danger. I must kill, like center mass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They don't teach police officers to shoot at your thigh or your arm. Center mass. Yeah, neutralize the threat. Hey, that's the better. Yeah, right there in the center. We're not trying to kill you. We're just trying to stop the threat. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to, like, you're supposed to be able to know what a threat is and know when to stop. You're supposed to fucking notice it. I felt like I knew it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not about to go out here and pull my fucking gun on some motherfuckers and... They just smoking weed and blacks and shit in the car and bumping their sounds. They just having a good time. It's nice outside. Mm-hmm. They black. That's what black people do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This shit is not a threat to me. This is normal. Mm-hmm. These guys just having a good time. And yeah, in my mind, they probably got some fucking weed in the car or something. But man, what the fuck? Like, why do I want to search that car for weed? Like, if they, if I smell it or if they show me something, then I'll go there because that's my job. Like, you've seen it, plain sight. Hey, you got to make a decision. Integrity. So now you're talking about weed talk. 
But if you don't see no fucking weed and you just stereotype motherfucker, that's what I'm talking about. Like yep. you're trying to like bring some shit in. Like, dude, it's just a regular old traffic stop. You ain't see nothing. You ain't hear nothing. Motherfucker got a valid license, got insurance. Let them go. Yeah. Let them go. Don't be trying to. So where are you coming from? <laughs> People, you do not have to answer them fucking questions. But if you answer them and you don't answer them, now you it's like a relationship you're building with this guy at the window. You know, so if you say, man, I got to answer your shit. Oh, really? Oh, you're trying to, hey. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, all right, who's, who's, what's, who's the other guy sitting over there? You know what I'm saying? Like he turns, ain't got to tell you shit. Yeah, in <laughs> terms of one of those things. Then they teach you as a police officer to articulate your experiences. You know, you have to create a story, a picture, in the other person's brain when they're reading this so they can go back, so they can make the same decisions. So they always tell you to articulate your words and be descriptive, but not too descriptive. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Police 101 style writing, mm-hmm. right? On such and such date. But the way you articulate your words, like in the DUI, you have to like articulate your words. You know, mm-hmm. this individual had bloodshot eyes upon their traffic stop. You know, I noticed that the individual was driving over the center line. I saw him drive over the center line two or three times. I decided to make a traffic stop. Upon making a traffic stop and walking up to the window, I smelled what I believe was an odor of cannabis, which you can go back to the police academy and say, I learned this on such and such date, documented, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. So I really understood what the odor of cannabis was. Then you just start searching the car. <laughs> you bring this out. <laughs> this motherfucker just really just went and got some pizza from Little Caesars. <laughs> Maybe he had a little blunt or something before he left the girl's house. And he's just trying to get the pizza back. And this is a bad night for this guy. Because now, you know what? He didn't even check Jackson County shit. This motherfucker got suspended driver's license. So he wasn't even expecting this shit because he wasn't even paying attention to his driver's license. So now it's arrest. The car is getting towed. <laughs> the pizza's gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fucked up somebody's life. Just real quick because your discernment. You couldn't understand, like, this wasn't some shit to keep moving forward on. And that's important to people, man. Just imagine if you just went and got some pizza. And your fucking night was ruined, and this was the last $5 you had. This was last, you had this, and you saved it up in coins. Have some discernment. My thing, what I learned, cultural competence, is De La Salle, my high school. Because I wasn't in school with white people until I was in high school. My neighborhood was African-American. The grammar school, everything was African-American. So Douglas Elementary, where I graduated from, it was primarily all black folks. The teachers, the principal, the students, (laughs) the gym coach, everybody, all African-American. Once I got into high school, that's when I began to like really develop like cultural competence and understanding different people from different walks of life. And I had this gift of just meeting everybody. 
you know, because of sports. Sports kind of connected me with different walks of life, different people. Mm -hmm. And De La Salle was the high school I graduated from, and that environment, we just had our 25th high school reunion, too, recently. That's why this is, like, it just brought me back full circle because I hadn't talked to some of these people for many, many years. And we was on a Zoom, and I was, like, <laughs> smiling from ear to ear because I'm thinking back on these moments, these things that happened on the field, these things that happened in the wrestling room, basketball, in the hallways, the teachers in class. Like, it was a whole, like, life experience for me at De La Salle. And that was one of the places that really, really grounded me on understanding many, many people. And, and everybody know I had a really, really bad incident my, like my junior year where I made a really, really bad decision. And from there, I, I was making a lot of bad decisions. Like mm -hmm. this decision was the worst, one of the worst, like one of the things I regret even happening in my life, but it taught me so much. And then my life began to kind of like spiral out of control after I made a decision to do that shit in high school. Got kicked out and some more shit. That shit fucking like. It took me lay on a uh, state of depression because like I'm like God damn man you know. I allowed what somebody else said to me, to turn on a friend of mine. This dude was my friend, not just somebody like we play sports with. Like he really is still my friend. Like I really I would do anything for this dude. But these other guys was convincing because of the shit. Like, that tension began to grow, you know? Because we didn't go to school with white guys. So we had Bridgeport. We had Canaryville. We had these guys come from the suburbs. We had the Hispanic guys over there that was down there by 26 in California. Like, these dudes was real essays. Like, this shit was real. These dudes were real game bangers. Like, one of my classmates just now getting out the Fed joint. Tom Parra. That's my guy. Like, Tom was quiet. Tom, you, Tom is not about to fight you. We knew Tom, but Tom was cool with everybody. He was one of the realest motherfuckers I ever met in my life. And then one night, I'm watching fucking, like, I forgot what it was, America's Most Wanted or something, and then his fucking name. <laughs> I'm like, this motherfucker Tom Pars and fucking, like, this motherfucker is a big-ass fucking criminal in Chicago. Like, this shit crazy as hell. But we were the people that went to dealer sale. <laughs> and he was part of that 25th uh, graduating class. And he's still my guy. If I saw him today, we got stories of all that shit when we was kids, man. You make decisions when you get older. You want to get some money. You this and that. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. And I come from that same background. Hey, it is what it is. You know, they, they trained us to be able to do time. Fuck. That was like a, if you get to the point where you can do some time, now you got like this ghetto fucking superstar. You know what I'm saying? Because then like you got a conversation with motherfuckers that other people can't have no conversation with. Man, you know what I'm saying? We was down in Menard and Block, whoop the whoop whoop Like it was like, you know, this thing. You know what I'm saying? So if you can make it to that and make it through that shit, man, the girl's on you. You get some money. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was the environment I had came from. So I, I get it, Tom. I get it. You got to get that money. And that's what we was on. That shit fucked our heads up, man. All the guys I know, all these motherfuckers went to prison, man. <laughs> Everybody. I was on my way. 
we're not gonna we're not gonna record that incident. No, no, no. <laughs> but let me just tell you, <laughs> there, Mister, was a, there was a chance. There man, were directions to be there taken. There was a a decision was made, <laughs> and I and my life ended up going in the total opposite direction. I think if I didn't make that decision, instead of me being on the social work side, on the law enforcement side, those years of my life would have been spent pondering those things as possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, concrete self. And Not I was ready for it. Them motherfuckers prepared you, man. They, hey, shit, you got to be tough, man. You know what I'm saying? This shit happened, you got to go down. You don't tell, you don't talk to a motherfucker. That's how I was grew, grew up. I still won't tell on your motherfucking ass. You can give me your deepest, darkest <laughs> <laughs> secret. <laughs> that shit did... Before you even finish saying the last sentence of that shit, I heard it, but I didn't hear it. That was the that was the, like the place I came from. Yeah. Hey, your business is your business. This shit don't, ain't your business. <laughs> so motherfuckers got you ready for prison, man. <laughs> they got you ready, man. If it was your business, stand on your motherfucking business. You feel me? Motherfucking challenge you, fight they motherfucking ass. Even if you lose, fight they motherfucking ass. You know what I'm saying? Whoop de whoop de whoop. You stay at and we slap box. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> we we weren't like I got the I got into boxing like later on, like uh-huh. when I was maybe like 16, 17, golden gloves. But like slap boxing was something we did just on the whim. Like we out there kicking. I wish we could do a movie like mm-hmm. and show you this shit. We out on hanging on the block, and my man uh Looney would be like, Brent, he was a slap box king because Looney was short, mm-hmm. but he had some hands. And when we call motherfucking hood and got some hands, they fast. They could throw them hands. You know what I'm saying? And Looney was one of them motherfuckers. He always was solo dolo and he could throw them hands. <laughs> and Looney taught me how to motherfucking slap box. It was the first five licks. So the first five slaps on the opponent or whatever, you win. So now, goddamn with you. You know what I'm saying? You throwing jabs and shit like yeah, these motherfuckers is challenging you, man. Get you ready. You know what I'm saying? So you was ready. Motherfucker fights you at the basketball court. You can't even go have a nice recreational evening as a kid. You at the park and these <laughs> motherfuckers want to fight you and challenge you. Like that's the environment. Like out of the blue, you having a good day. It's beautiful outside. Y'all been playing basketball. Then you got like four kids from Stateway. Rolling up on their bicycles, and it's like two of y'all out there, and it's four of them. And these little badass fucking kids got their shirt off. <laughs> these little, excuse me, y'all, got their shirt off, and they dirty. Like, this is a little <laughs> dirt ass. <laughs> you know, you motherfucker know what I'm talking about. This little kid dirty as hell. They ain't got no basketball. They ain't got nothing. These little motherfuckers got a bike. They got their shirt off, and then they hair all nappy and shit, like BDBs. And they also, the motherfucker got snot, like, dried up right here. They just grind me, like. And we, like, we out here trying to play basketball. And these motherfuckers roll up, and they ask you a question, like, some lame-ass shit, like, y'all know John? And we, like, no, man, just let's fight, nigga. <laughs> we already know what y'all here. We ain't running. <laughs> so we out there fighting these kids from Stateway. Like, this shit, then I go home. Like and eat some dinner. Like this was this what we was doing <laughs> as kids. This shit was stressful. 
like a war zone, man. man. The ship builds you to handle every other challenge in front of you. Oh, my goodness, bro. <laughs> like, motherfuckers can't even understand going through. I got robbed. The first time I got robbed at gunpoint, I was uh, 13. Shit. I was 13. I got robbed at gunpoint. That's the motherfucker you see here today. You imagine your kid or you at 13 getting robbed at gunpoint in broad daylight. I was fucking squishy, man. I can't imagine me doing <laughs> shit. And here's 13. the thing. My intuition, like, because I came from Arkansas mm -hmm. to Chicago, I came, I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh -huh. We never even got there. But I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, and we moved to Chicago in, like, 87, something like that. So all these years, like I had learned some foundational shit in Arkansas, but then when I got to Chicago, man, it was like two different people. Mm -hmm. I showed my wife these pictures of me in Little Rock, and then the next year, me in Chicago. Them <laughs> two kids look totally fucking different. Mm -hmm. And this is me. Like, I got to show you the fucking pictures yeah. one day, Nate. And they just a year apart. This kid is like, you know, collegiate sweaters and shit. Then this kid is like, like, man, you got some money? What you got? You know, like, this kid is grimy. Like, he done been through some shit. He looks sad. He looks fucking depressed. He looks everything. This kid is happy. Like, that was me at 13. The motherfuckers robbed me at gunpoint right there on uh, State Street. There was a fish house right up under the L train. On state and fucking 35th and state. And I go in and my discernment is telling me there's <coughs> some people watching me and shit. Cause like if, if y'all remember the old fish mark, you had the big, like the fish uh glass things here, then you had people sitting down right here too in the old stateway fish mark. So I'm walking, I had the food stamps. Back in back in the day, you had a book of food stamps. Mm -hmm. And my mama used to give me the book of food stamps enough for me to get what we need to get at the, for the grocery store, and then I could stop by the corner store and get a little something, whatever I wanted to, right? So I'm in here. I see these guys out the corner of my eye. You know what I'm saying? And my mama, she used to always try to buy me some nice shit. So I had, like, the old college uh, team hat, and I just put my earrings in these little holes and shit. So, like, I had, I was on that. So I had a little something a little flashy, rule number one, new neighborhood, Flash your shit, take it off. <laughs> you don't draw too much attention to yourself. So I go in, they out of hat. You know what I'm saying? When I go back and look at the whole situation over again, they out the hat. If I never would have had that motherfucking hat on, I probably never would have got robbed that mm -hmm. day because they was looking for a Vic. And that's in Chicago, we call Vic ass motherfucker. He's a victim. He's a Vic. <laughs> oh, Vic ass motherfucker. So they was looking at me like I'm a Vic. Because I was. I came in there with this hat on and set myself up for failure. I leave out. They scurry right behind me. I see them in the peripherals. They rolled up on me so fast, Nate. I ain't even see them. Like, boom, they rolled up on me. Hey, man, turn around. You know what I'm saying? Open your jackets up. And I'm like, man, what the fuck, man? What's going on, man? Give me this motherfucking hat, nigga. Give me this motherfucking hat. Then they start going in my pockets and shit. They took my mama food stamps. They took the hat off my head. And they took the motherfucking fish I had. So I'm like, I'm looking at these motherfuckers. I'm like, man, if I catch you motherfuckers by y'all self, I'll kill one of you. You know, I was angry. But I was more angry that they took my mama fish. 
Cause she gonna fucking whoop my ass. <laughs> like that's all I was thinking about. Yeah, these goof ass motherfuckers robbing me, but man, these motherfuckers took the dinner. They took our dinner for the night. So I go back to the house. I tell Mikael, all right, Mike, rest in peace. You know what I'm saying? Lenore's senior. That's the original Lenore's. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but anyway, I go back to the crib. I tell them, these motherfuckers robbed me. I ain't say these motherfuckers, but I said they robbed me. Dad, mom, they robbed me. They took the food stamps. I ain't have my hat. I didn't have a fish. I didn't have the food stamps. Mikael was like, that's why I get that turn up side from, like, go from mm -hmm. zero to a thousand. Mm -hmm. Because this dude, he protected his fucking family like a wild animal. If you fuck with his kids or his lady or some shit, this motherfucker will fight you to the death. I watched, I'm telling you, even if he would lose. He don't give a fuck. He's going to resurrect. He's going to try to kill you again. Like, he had that, <laughs> and he had that hunt. And Shannon know what I'm talking about. I got that shit from his ass because he wasn't scared of shit. He was not scared of a motherfucker. He would go to political. I, man, I don't even want to go into that story because that's why I'm afraid to go into politics because he taught me so much shit about politics. Like, it made me not even want to. Like, he was already knew one day I might be a politician. So he didn't want to, like, but he showed me all this shit about politics, the grimy shit that come along with politics. And most of the motherfucking politicians is thugs, nigga. They like Easy e and Ren and, you know what I'm saying, Ice Cube. <laughs> These motherfuckers is thugs. They dressed up in blue and all these tuxedos and shit, got them in ties. And these motherfuckers is real thugs. They dirty, they grimy, <laughs> and they trying to get everything they can get out of everything. <laughs> That's what a real politician is. <laughs> he don't give a fuck about democracy. He don't give a fuck about being a Democrat or a Republican. These motherfuckers about this money. <laughs> they don't give a fuck about none of that shit. They, yeah, they going with this party because, yeah, okay, I like the way they going on this motion and that motion and they tabled this and woo 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 but at the end of the day, we got this big money move we gonna make and I'm trying to stick around, so I'm Democrat. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's where we cash in on the podcast. Always like to end on a lesson. That lesson, this podcast, is don't trash politicians. <coughs> and you can know that because I said it. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 12, <laughs> Lee Hughes. Amazing. Have a good one, whatever that one may be. Yes, <laughs>